Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. life. It has been a, a great joy to get to be with you these past few weeks. I know every time my wife Catherine and I come back, one of our greatest joys is just getting to gather together with the body and to worship Christ together as one. And so it's been a great joy. And just to be honest, Joshua is one of my favorite books. So when I asked Alan if he had any spots open to preach, and he said, we're preaching through Joshua, but you have chapters 20 and 21 I was still excited, so I'm excited to dive into this passage this morning with you guys, and so, but just to start, I wanted to start by asking a question. Why did God choose and redeem Israel? It's a pretty important question, right? We're reaching the end of Joshua. They've already taken much of the land, and if you've been tracking with us this whole time, I'm sure maybe you've caught yourself wondering, like, what's the point of all this? Why did God choose Israel? Why is he kicking out the Canaanites out of the land and establishing his people in this land? And what we're going to learn this morning is that God redeems his people for his glory in all of the earth. However, before getting into the passage today, I think it'd be helpful to understand God's heart for his people. So we're going to do a full sermon on the first five books of the Bible before getting into this passage. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to be here for a while. Totally kidding. But in all seriousness, though, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's words show us that God created all things for his glory, and he created Adam and Eve to be his co-rulers over his world. God made Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, but rather than worshiping God and giving glory to him, they exchanged it for a lie, and they chose to worship and to exalt themselves. They exalted themselves over God, and every person since has been born into this heart of pride and rebellion against God's good and just rule. But God did not scrap his plan. He would be worshipped by his people and his land under his good and his righteous rule. So many years and generations pass. People become more and more corrupt and rebellious against God. And God decides to choose one man, Abraham, the father of Israel, to bless and to make great, that he would in turn bring God's blessing and rule to all the peoples of the earth. So God's desire for being worshipped by all people did not change after the fall. He makes a covenant with Abraham to bless him and his descendants and to give them the land of Canaan to bless all the families of the earth and through him and his offspring. And this good news, if you read Genesis, is what God reaffirms again and again to Abraham and to his descendants and offspring. And it's the promise that Israel holds on to all the way into slavery in Egypt. And then get this, they spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. So we're celebrating, as Chris said in his prayer, 245 years as a country. 400 years. Think about how much has changed from day one of our country to now. Many of us probably can't tell you who our great-grandparent was, let alone 400 years. 
So no doubt the Israelites had to be wondering if God's promises were really going to come true, if they remembered his promises at all. But God remembers Israel, and he raises up his servant Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. God works many miracles in delivering them, and he brings them to Mount Sinai to form his special covenant relationship with his people Israel. But before he does that, he says this to his newly redeemed and chosen people in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. So look on the screen with me. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you see from the beginning, Israel was chosen and redeemed by God to be his representatives to all the nations. This is the idea behind kingdom of priests. They were chosen and blessed not simply for the glory of Israel as a nation, but they were chosen and treasured by God to show all the nations God's glory and goodness. So all the rules, the commands, the laws that follow in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which we all love to read, are not things Israel has to do in order to be God's people. A teacher I heard once said it this way, being proceeds doing. And if you're taking notes, it's so fine if you're not, but if you're taking notes, write this down, because I think this is a critical thing. Being proceeds doing. Because Israel was chosen, redeemed, and set apart for God's glory, they had to take seriously his words and commands of obedience. The purpose of the law was to establish God's people as his treasured possession and to have them serve as his beloved representatives to the world. God had aligned himself and his public reputation with his people in Exodus by saying, this is my people and I am their God. So justice, worship, and obedience for Israel were essential. Not so that it could be good enough to be God's people, but precisely because they were God's people and they represented God to the nations. And this is why God cares so deeply about the holiness and the lives of his people. Because our lives tell the story, for better or for worse, of how good and worthy to be worshipped our God is. And this is why our two passages that we find ourselves in this morning today are so important. They may seem like two insignificant descriptions of an outdated map, but as we're going to see, they actually represent the heart that God has for the people of his kingdom. And in chapter 20, we're going to learn that God desires justice in his kingdom. And I realize that the idea of justice has been a very debated topic within our country this morning. And so I wanted to provide from the outset a very clear biblical definition of what justice is. So if you're taking notes, once again, write this down. Doing justice is treating all people with respect, dignity, and honor as image bearers of God. I'm going to say that again. Doing justice is treating all people with respect, 
dignity, and honor as image bearers of God. So anytime I reference justice or doing justice for the rest of the sermon, this is what I mean. And we're going to return to this idea here in a minute. But as Pastor Chris shared last week and where we find ourselves at this morning is that Joshua and Israel have now officially distributed all the land to all the tribes. And in chapter 20, having distributed the land and Joshua having received his own inheritance, he's commanded by the Lord to appoint cities of refuge throughout the land as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the question is, what did God command Moses and why are these cities so important? I'm glad you asked. In these first few verses, the author lays out the basic idea behind these cities. He says this in verses 2 through 3, which we're going to put on the screen for you. Say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. There shall be to you a refuge from the avenger of blood. So these cities of refuge are places where someone who's accidentally murdered someone can flee to before the avenger of blood, who was probably a close relative of the person killed, can take vengeance upon him. And this is not a new idea as well. As alluded to, God had already told Moses about setting up these cities all the way back in the books of the law. So in Exodus 21, the basic idea behind this is introduced to Moses. In Numbers 35, God gives greater detail about how they're to run to Moses and the number of the cities they're to have. And then Deuteronomy 4 and 19 give details about the placement within God's kingdom. And the purpose of the cities of refuge was to establish justice in the land and to ensure that innocent blood was not shed one way or another. And if you look at the screen behind me again, you can see where these six cities were established throughout the land. So if you can see that, there's the red circles represent the cities of refuge. So there's three on the left side of the Jordan River and three on the right side of the Jordan River. And everyone within all of the kingdom of Israel could reach one of these locations within a day's travel. So the manslayer was to run to one of these cities to present himself in his case to the judges and the rulers of that city, and he would receive protection from the avenger of blood until his case was decided upon. And he was to stay there until the death of the high priest at the time if he was found to be not guilty. And just to be clear, the avenger of blood is not just some hothead relative that wants to get vengeance. But in Numbers 35, he's actually commanded to kill this man if he's found to have been murdered someone. So God's concern with establishing these cities of refuge was once again to make sure that true justice prevailed in God's kingdom. There it was truly an accident or a premeditated murder that true justice prevailed. And God says this about cities of refuge in Numbers 35, if you look on the screen again with me. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land And no atonement can be made for the land that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So God's people were called to honor God, who dwelt among them, 
by representing him and how they treated all people, regardless of their societal or economic status, as this applied to sojourners in their midst as well. They were to be a reflection of the God of justice whose image has been stamped on every single human being on this planet, regardless of how far they have strayed from him. And to further illustrate why these cities are important and God's heart behind them, look at me at Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And this is actually right after the flood where God has literally just judged all of mankind for their sin. And he's establishing his covenant with Noah, which reveals just the weight behind this command. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And this reveals the true heart of the matter and why injustice is so offensive to God. For God made man in his own image. And remember, doing justice is treating all people with dignity, honor, and respect as image bearers of God. John Golden Gay in his book, Israel's Gospel, says humans are indirectly sacred because of the fact that human beings are godlike. So attacking a human being is like attacking God. And it's because human beings are godlike that attacks on human beings cannot go unnoticed. So Israel, as God's people and representatives, were to treat people differently than the nations around them. They were to reflect God's love and care for people whom he has made in his image. God was so passionate about his people living justly in his kingdom because they represented him as, a, as priests to the nations around them. Justice was not some optional thing for those living within the kingdom of God, but it was at the very heart of what it meant to be a redeemed and renewed people in God's kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, the God that we serve does not change. He is the same today, yesterday, tomorrow, and on into eternity. And so I hope that it's clear that our God is a God of justice and that those who claim to be citizens of his kingdom are to be about justice themselves. Just as Israel represented God as a kingdom of priests to the nations, so we as the church of Jesus Christ do as well. We are God's children, one with Christ, one with one another, and as a church, we hold up the truth of the gospel with our words and with our actions. And when the world looks at the church, it sees Jesus Christ, accurately or inaccurately, because we are his bride and we are one with him. So my question for us this morning is what do you think those who look at the church today would say about Jesus? Do you think that by looking at our lives, our social media accounts, how we interact with our neighbor, if we interact with them, how we interact with those who think differently than us, hold to political views different than us, how we care for the marginalized and the poor, do you think they're seeing an accurate representation of Christ, the King of Justice? 
Brothers and sisters, I have to be honest and say I think oftentimes we've misrepresented the King and the Savior that we proclaim and that we follow. I say this as a foremost and as one who has consistently in my life turned a blind eye to my own sin and pride and judging those and with viewing with disdain those who have different views than my own, whether theologically or politically. And you don't have to look hard in our country's past to see that not only has the American church not been about the cause of justice at times, but it's been apathetic at best and advocating at worst for the cause of injustice. As I've studied and read histories and biographies of our African-American brothers and sisters, it's grieved me to my heart just how rampant God's image has been denied in these brothers and sisters by the people that claim to worship Christ. And brothers and sisters, while we're not held responsible for the sins of our fathers of the previous generation, we have inherited the mess that they created by their hardness of heart regarding matters of justice. And today we find ourselves in a culture that is crying out for justice, and many are not even believers. Yet they're still made in the image of God. And know that when people are not treated with the dignity and the respect that God created everyone with, that there's something wrong there. And I realize that many people in the fight for societal justice are often not Christians. And I realize they're coming up with flawed theories of, and ways of dealing with it. But church, rather than seeing this as a threat, should we not see this as an opportunity to engage our neighbor with love and with the gospel? We have to adopt this missionary mindset that Paul had. He didn't destroy and wage war against culture, but he engaged it respectfully with the gospel. I'd encourage you this week, spend time reading Acts 17 and see how Paul engaged the idol-worshiping community in Athens. He is provoked by the city that's full of idols, but he actually commends them as being very religious people. And rather than raging against them and calling them a bunch of satanic pagans, he engages with them with love and respect. He even quotes some of their idol-worshiping philosophers in his gospel presentation to them. And then he respectfully presents the true and only God that created them and calls them from worshiping dead idols to serve his son, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the grave and has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we have to take seriously our role as ambassadors of Christ, the righteous king of the universe that cares for every single human being on this planet. God's church is the one people on all the earth that should truly care about justice and treating every person with dignity and respect because we know that they're made in God's image. Church, we have this amazing opportunity right now to engage in this area that our culture cares deeply about but has no true answer to. And church, we do. But I'm afraid we may miss it because we're so caught up fighting one another on how to do it right. All the while, no one's engaging these people that are genuinely wondering if they're valuable to God because of their skin color or because of their status in life. Brothers and sisters, we were made for this. 
We have been redeemed from slavery to sin and to Satan and brought into the beloved family of God. We need to remember that we too were enslaved to sin and we were enemies of God and saved only by the grace and the mercy of Christ. We have been set apart as a kingdom of priests for God's glory in all the world that others may come to know and worship him through us. So let's engage our neighbors with the good news of the God of justice who sent his son to right every wrong and who will come again one day to establish true and perfect justice in this world. Church, myself included, we need to turn from how we've neglected to honor and to represent our God. Brothers and sisters, let's gather together as one to seek God's face and to ask him to use us to be the hands and the feet of Christ to our community. Rather than waging, raging war against our culture and its theories, let's engage people with this missionary mindset, seeking to win their hearts and not just an argument. And church, I don't have all the answers, and I honestly need to apply this to my own heart as well. But I do know that God is calling us as his representatives to be about justice. We should treat every single person we come into contact with, with dignity and with honor and with respect, knowing that they are made in God's image. Our God is a God of justice, and we as his children should be too. These cities of refuge, however, were not the last distribution of land. Rather, that was to the Levites, who were not given a land themselves to dwell in, but cities. And we're going to see in chapter 21 that God desires worship in his kingdom. And if you've been tracking with us as we've gone through the book of Joshua and as the land was distributed throughout Israel, you will have probably noticed comments like, and the Levites were not given their own land, but they were given cities to dwell in. And rather than go verse by verse throughout this very long chapter that reads like an outdated map, I'll once again show you guys the map on the screen behind me so you can see for yourself the dispersion of these cities. So as we talked about earlier, those red circles represent the cities of refuge, which also served as Levitical cities. And all those black dots throughout all the space of Israel were these Levitical cities. And the three sons of Levi th form the three clans within this tribe. So the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. That's some names right there. <laughs> it's worth noting that no one in all the land of Israel was more than 10 miles away from these Levitical cities so that everyone within God's kingdom could reach these and have direct access to them. But the question remains, why did the Levites not get their own land, and why are these cities significant? Well, to answer the first question, we have to go back to Genesis. So right before Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, passes in Genesis 49, 5 through 7, he pronounces a curse on two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, for their massacre of the men of Shechem. So it's a terrible story, but Simeon and Levi's sister Dinah is abused by one of the men of Shechem. And these two brothers take vengeance into their own hands and kill all the men of the town. So Jacob denounces their act of violence, and he divides both of their tribes amongst the land rather than giving them their own land to dwell in. However, 
This is not the end of the story for the Levites. Their tribe is redeemed from their disgraced state in the book of Exodus. So in Exodus 32, famous passage, the golden calf incident, the only tribe to stand with Moses and to reject the worship of the golden calf was the tribe of Levi. So God redeems their tribe and gives them the honor of being set apart for the service of the Lord. So they go from having no inheritance of their own to being the leaders of worship for Israel and teachers of God's word to his people. And just to clarify, they were not more holy than the rest of the people, and their mission was not different. In the same way that working today in ministry doesn't make you a more faithful or holy Christian. This was their calling by God, to remind God's people of who he was, who they were as his people, and what their mission to this world was. This was their role within the God's kingdom. But do you see why it's so important that these cities be distributed all throughout the land? God's desire was not simply to kick out the Canaanites and have his people plop down in the land of Canaan for the rest of time. God was blessing his people and giving them the land so that they would in turn be a blessing and bring his goodness and his blessing and rule to all nations and people. This was God's heart and promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And Israel desperately needed to remember this and sadly forgot it throughout their whole history. Throughout the book of Joshua, we've seen people set up monuments of, as reminders of what God has done to remind themselves of all he's done for them as a people and how worthy of worship he is. So God evenly distributes these cities all throughout the land so that every citizen of the kingdom could worship him and be reminded of who he was, who they were, and what their mission to this world was. Well, during my time in missionary training, I had the amazing opportunity to visit one of our fields, Papua New Guinea, where we have missionaries there working and training pastors there. Um, and they have two indigenous tribes that are way out in the bush that they're trying to reach with the gospel. But part of our work there um, is he's training and equipping these local pastors to do the work themselves. And we had the privilege of being there whenever he was doing the Lord's Supper. So many of these guys had never taken the Lord's Supper before. And the ones that had were just like, well, the missionaries beforehand told us to do it, so we just kind of did it. Um, but it was so powerful to get to go through this week and see our missionary there unlock the scripture for them and help them see with their own eyes the story and help them see the command to do it and to rejoice as one body together in our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it, the week resulted and ended with us taking this Lord's Supper together. And just to be honest, was the most powerful Lord's Supper I've ever been a part of. Um, and, you know, what, as we were sitting there, not a dry eye among us as missionaries, we're all just like weeping. And I just started thinking about what is so powerful about this moment. And it was just this realization that this guy sitting next to me, we could not have grown up in any further, both physically, it's very far away. It's like 17 hours of plane ride. But also worldview, just how we were raised, we could not be any more different. And yet what united us was this worship of Christ, one Lord, one Savior. And I realized that it's the worship of Jesus Christ that unites all people and all those who call on the name of Christ, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, or your nationality. 
Church family, God's heart to be worshipped by all people and all of his land has not changed. This has been God's desire since the very beginning when he commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with his glory and image. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, this is our glorious hope. This is the glorious message that we get to live out and to proclaim to all nations. We have the great honor of knowing and being known by God through Christ and through his spirit. We have the true life-giving message and the keys to the kingdom of God. We have the answer to everyone's deep longing for justice in this world. Jesus Christ, the righteous son of God, suffered and died unjustly at the hands of men, but he rose from the grave victoriously and is uniting all things on earth to himself. And we know that one day every wrong will be made right again. We know that true joy and justice are only found through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior and the King who is reigning over the universe and will come back again to renew all things and right every wrong and injustice. He'll wipe away every tear from every eye. And if you're here this morning and you're seriously struggling with bitterness or anger or grief because you've been on the wrong end of injustice, know that you'll be brought true comfort and justice by him in that day. And all who have lived lives of rebellion, treating God and others with disdain and contempt, will be rightly judged by our King Jesus. He is the only one worthy of our worship and our awe and our praise. And it's worshiping Christ and following him as king that unites all citizens of heaven on earth, regardless of skin color, denomination, or nationality. And church, this is our mission. We are one with Christ, set aside as a kingdom of priests to worship him, to honor him with our lives, and to proclaim that he alone is the savior and the king over all of the universe and the only one worthy of our allegiance and our praise. And if you're here today and you don't yet worship Christ, but you find yourself longing for justice and meaning in life, let me plead with you to turn to Christ and to trust and worship him. Your life has meaning because you've been created in the image of God and for his glory. So please turn to Christ and worship him and live for his glory and not your own. Well, as was read in the beginning, chapter 21 ends with this amazing summary statement by the author of Joshua. And it serves really as a summary of all that God has done up until that point and recounts how God has been faithful throughout all of Israel's history to do exactly what he said he would do. Every promise and every word that he uttered to their fathers God has accomplished. And yet, there still had work to do. There is still a call on Israel to continue to take the land that remained. And church family, 
this same call lies before us as well. Except our call is not a call to physical arms, but to spiritual arms. We are in a battle against Satan and his kingdom, whether we realize it or not, and he would have us think that we are not. We've been entrusted with this gospel of the kingdom to go out and to proclaim and to live out for the world to see and worship Christ as king. We have this glorious promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. And remember, gates are a defense mechanism. We as a church are to be going out and to proclaiming this message. We can take comfort and hope as we seek to proclaim the gospel and advance against the kingdom of darkness in this world. Jesus will continue to work and to move through his body for his glory. And one day he's going to return to make all things new, and there will be no more challenge to his glorious rule. Racism, injustice, all evil will be forever destroyed, and we will reign together as one family, one body, with Christ as co-heirs in the new heavens and the new earth. We will live forever in the true rest that we all long for with our God and our King, Jesus Christ, worshiping him forever face to face. What a great day that'll be. Let it come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. beg you, O oh Master, to be our helper and protector. Deliver those of us who are in distress. Raise up the fallen. Show your face to those in need. Heal the sick. Bring back the erring of your people. Feed the hungry. Ransom our prisoners. Set the sick upon their feet. Comfort the faint-hearted. Let all the nations know that you are the only God that Jesus Christ is your son, and that we are the people and the sheep of your pasture. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.